Well, good evening. How's everyone doing? I'm glad I'm enjoying this cooler weather now. It's uh, starting to cool off, and it feels really nice outside. <laughs> um, if you were with, uh, with us on Sunday, uh, this message might seem a little bit familiar, but I think that tonight is sort of going to be the culmination of what we've been talking about, uh, or at least what we were talking about on Sunday morning and Sunday evening. If you remember, we were in, in Luke chapter 18, Sunday morning, we were talking about the Pharisee and the publican. And then on Sunday evening, we uh, delved even further into Luke chapter 19. We talked about Zacchaeus and, uh, and how Jesus interacts with him. And tonight, I think, is really the culmination of all those themes kind of coming together. And we find those in none other than Luke chapter 15. <laughs> Luke chapter 15, if you'll turn there. You know, it's sometimes... Um, hyperbole when pastors and preachers they say that they have a favorite passage or whatever i think that's kind of funny um i don't want to be super spiritual and say i have no favorite passage the bible's my favorite <laughs> i have certainly have favorite passages in the bible and i think one of them is definitely luke chapter 15 uh the the trilogy of parables here in this in this chapter that jesus tells are just outstanding and phenomenal they have such rich meaning for us that it goes far beyond uh a lot of our imaginations but let me first start off by, by telling you this, that Christianity is, is not a religion. You know, that might surprise you when I, when I say that. But by religion, I mean religion is man working himself towards God. Man working himself by what he's doing and what he's performing and what he is sacrificing, all these sorts of things. That's religion. And Christianity is not like that, because what makes Christianity different than any other religion in the world is that it's a relationship with a real person, a real living person whose name is Jesus Christ. And that's why it's so different. That's why it's so amazing. And it's not something that you're performing. It's something that you're living. It's something that you're living by your life. You know, one writer said it this way, that Christianity is not a creed, it's not an organization or a religious system, it's the life of God in humans making us more like Christ. That's what it is. It's not a creed or it's not some, all these sort of incantations. It's the life of Christ. And I think really what we're going to find out tonight is that that's what it's all about. It's about relationship. And we're going to be talking about the parable of the two sons and really, that's what it's about. Luke chapter 15 and verse 11 really begins what we commonly refer to as the parable of the prodigal son. But I like to refer to it as the parable of the two sons because to ignore the, the second half of Jesus' illustration, I think, is to just ignore the whole point of Jesus even telling the story in the first place. And I think a lot of times we do that. Sometimes I've, I've even heard messages done they just stop at the at when the first son comes home if you remember this story and that really ignores the point of the story ignores what jesus was even telling the story in the first place and so really i just kind of want to walk through the text tonight um so let's start in verse 11 we'll read a couple of verses and we'll we'll comment on it um verse 11 of chapter 15 of luke 15 verse 11 and he that is jesus said a certain man had two sons and the younger of them said to his father Father, give me the portion of goods that fa fa falleth to me. And he divided unto them his living. And not many days after, the younger son gathered together in, all together and took his journey into a far country. And there wasted his substance with riotous living. And when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in, the la in that land. And he began to be in want. 
And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would fain have filled his belly with the husks that, he, that the swine did eat, and no man gave unto him. And when he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my father's have bread enough and to spare? And I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants." So what we find here, we have this haughty, this just very arrogant and selfish son. He comes up to his dad and he demands, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. Give me my inheritance. Dad, you are dead to me, so just give me what you're going to give me when you're dead. I want it now. Now, that's really what he was saying. That's just how amazing and how just amazing that this son would have the audacity to come to his dad and say that. Dad, you are dead to me, so just give me what you're going to give me when you die and give it to me now. But that's really what he was saying. Because to demand his inheritance is to demand that his father is dead. You know, in the Old Testament law, in fact, in Deuteronomy 21, there's really strict regulations for how inheritances are to be laid out by a father. It goes, uh, the, the main portion goes to the firstborn son, and he's obviously the younger son, and all sorts of these things. But the, the main thing is that the father needed to be dead first. So basically he's saying, Dad, you are dead to me. And this disgruntled, this disgusted son demands his inheritance and he says that I'm just going to go my own way, Dad. I don't care about you. I don't care about your rules or your legacy or whatever you have tried to teach me while I've been in your house. I don't care. I'm going my own way. And so he departs. And the amazing thing about this story, I think right off the bat, is that the father gives him his inheritance. You know, sometimes I think it's, it's true that, that I think of... If, Perhaps if the father had resisted his son's rebellion, that perhaps the son wouldn't have learned as much. That sometimes, that's, that sometimes we need to fall in order to learn something. And just like the, I think the father knew that. He could see it. He could see that where this path was leading him. And he knew that, that this was not going to end well. But he knew that his son would learn a lot from it. And so the father gives his son his inheritance. Look at, verse, um, look at verse 12 again at the end of it. And it said, he divided unto them his living. He sold his living. He sold some of his livestock, I'm sure. He sold some of his, how he was making a profit in those days. And he, he divided it amongst his old, eldest son and his younger son, as we know, the prodigal son. And this prodigal son goes his own way. He, 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 buys, he buys friends, as we could say. He buys women. He buys pleasure. He spends his money. And he squanders everything. You could say he wastes his life. As it says there in verse 13, with riotous, and you could say reckless living. He's living it up. He's just spending his money. He's spending his life. And he's, he's spending all of his wealth. And then something unexpected happens. As it says there, a, a famine comes up in that country. An unexpected famine, a sudden famine strikes the land, and he's forced, as we can say, forced to turn from ceaseless partying to now ceaseless labor. He's forced to work again. He's forced to go back to work. And he finds it on a, a pig farm. And it's here that I think he realizes sort of the mess that he's put himself in. It's here that in the midst of this, just the muck and the filth and the, and the mud of swine that he recognizes his own filth and his own foolishness. 
as it says in verse 17, and when he came to himself, and he realizes really what he has done, he says, basically, here I'm starving, I am barely surviving, and there's people in my dad's house that are servants, and they're living like kings compared to I am. I'm, I'm having to eat with pigs. <laughs> and that's, what, that's what, how far he had come. And he determines to return home. That's verses 18 and 19. He determines to return home. And he, he begins trying to conjure up sort of this repentance speech. You can see him working. And he says, Dad, I, I'm no longer being worthy to be called your son. Just make me a higher servant. Let me work my way back in. And I think what's interesting is I, I, I think, I don't think that he was repentant just yet. I don't think he was fully aware of just how, what he had done to his family. You know, I sometimes like to think of this sort of speech that he's practicing here, sort of like the speech that Pharaoh was practicing during the ten plagues. Remember that? Where all these plagues were happening to the land of Egypt. And even Pharaoh himself cried out to Moses to be merciful. If you, I'm going to read a verse really quick in, back in Exodus. Exodus chapter 10 and verse 16. Because Pharaoh does sort of the same thing in this, cha- in this story. Then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron in haste, and he said... I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now, therefore, forgive, I pray thee, my sin only this once, and entreat the Lord your God, that he may take away from me this death only. Now, I don't think it's safe to say that Pharaoh was repentant. You could say he was, he was trying to have some damage control. His, his nation was in upheaval with all these plagues and all these things that were going on, and he was trying to just stem the tide. He was practicing damage control. I think the son was doing the same thing. He wasn't really thinking with his heart. He was thinking with his belly. <laughs> I need some food. I need some sustenance. And so he determines to go back home. And what is amazing is that this is where we get to the greatest part of the parable. In verse 20 and following. Let's look back at the text. Verse 20. And he rose, that is the father, or excuse me, that is the son. He came to his father. But when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight and am no more worthy to be called thy son. But the father said to his servants, Bring forth the best robe, and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand, and shoes on his feet, and bring hither the fatted calf, and kill it, and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to be merry. See, we come to the most important part of the story, the merciful father. I like what one writer says it this way. He may go nowhere and he may do very little, at least visibly, but he is the true hero of the story. And we cannot understand this tale unless we see it through the eyes of that father. See, he's so important because in that day, in that culture, this father could have done whatever he wanted to this son. This son had basically written off his family. He had gone his own way. He had taken and really squandered and wasted his father's uh, wealth. And now he was uh, audaciously returning home. He had the audacity and the amazing part that he tried to return home to his father to beg for some ounce of mercy. And this father could have done whatever he wanted. He could have made... He could have... um, forced him to be a slave and just work the land for the rest of his life. He could have really done what the son was asking for, make him a hired servant. 
He could have also just cut him off completely, said, you are dead to me, just go away from me, I don't ever want to see you again. Or even further, he could have stoned him. Under the law, he could have legally and righteously stoned this son for what he had done to the family, what he had done to everyone around him. But what does the father do? He doesn't do any of those things. He doesn't lecture his son. He doesn't excoriate his son. He doesn't tell him how how foolish and disrespectful and dishonorable he has been. And he doesn't rebuke him. He doesn't scold him about everything that he has to do now in order to earn his way back in. He doesn't do any of those things. What, What does he do? He gets full forgiveness, full amazing pardon right on the very spot. The father demonstrates a love that's so strong, he's willing to set aside his own dignity for the sake of his son. Verse 20 again, look at that. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. Now, the father running is an amazing part about the story because... Uh, For a father, he was, in this day, he was more, it was more patriarchal. The father was really a patriarch. He was more of a a, a captain, authority figure of the home. And he was very much to be reverenced. And so running was considered highly uh, unreverential. It was highly disgraceful for a father, a father of a family, a, a family probably of great stature like he was, to run. Because that day they didn't wear pants, they didn't have anything like that, they wore robes, long robes. And so in order to run, the father had to hike up his robe, so to speak. And he was exposing his legs, which was, in that day, considered very disrespectful, very, very dishonorable, especially for a father. And yet he does that. He, he hikes up his robe and he runs, he races out to his son. And I think that this is a prime picture a perfect picture of the type of grace that god shows for us the type of grace that is not afraid of shame and not afraid of sin and it runs to it to embrace it just like it says in isaiah 53 where it says he is despised and rejected of men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and we hid as it were our faces from him he was despised and we esteemed him not in this Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. That's what I think this points to. Jesus running towards us as he runs towards the cross. As this father runs towards his son and embraces all of his sin and shame. See, the merciful father never once demands anything from the son. He never demands anything. He just gives him the very opposite of what he deserves. Full restoration of his sonship before the son can say or do anything. I like how the son was, was, was practicing this speech. And I can see just the father just sort of interrupting him right in the middle of it. He's saying, Dad, uh, I'm so sorry, and just, I'm, I'm so sorry, just make me a hired hand. And he just gets interrupted by this embrace, by this hug of the Father. And this is the t- perfect picture of what Jesus has done for us. Perfect picture of Jesus coming and condescending to our low estate that we might be made whole again. As one uh, great uh, orator, C.H. Spurgeon, said, the condescension of God towards penitent sinners is very great. 
He seems to stoop from his throne of glory to fall upon the neck of a repentant sinner. And indeed, that's what he does. He comes down and, and literally condescends to us to embrace us with his love and his grace. And instead of rejection and instead of punishment and instead of just total um, alienation, this prodigal son is met with extreme love and forgiveness unconditional love and unconditional forgiveness a love that just doesn't know any bounds it doesn't know any limits it doesn't know any boundaries it just gives it's forgiveness with no regulations or expectations to be met you know one writer said it this way that this gospel has nothing to do with merit or claim or worthiness but with the opposites of all these it is grace to the uttermost, grace without mixture, grace which knows no bounds. It is a grace without terms and conditions and qualifications. Thank goodness for that. You know, um, I, one of the most annoying things to me is car commercials. I don't know about you, but I, uh, when you're watching TV, car commercials to me are the most annoying. Especially, I'll just call them out, the Kia commercials, because... They are very loud and bombastic. And then at the end, they try and make this huge deal for you, like they're just going to give you a car for, like, no money at all. And then at the very end, they have those tiny little words at the bottom of the screen, all those little terms and conditions. And they sometimes have a guy that's on the voiceover, and he goes through them really, really fast, and he says them really fast. But they're there, and they're the terms and the conditions that probably eliminate you from whatever deal they're trying to get you to come out and come to their lot for. But those terms and conditions are important because they can disqualify you from something. And I think the greatest thing is, is that the gospel of God has no terms and conditions. There's no fine print with God's grace. There's no fine print that just magically makes you not one that can take part of it. It's there for all of us. There's no fine print with it. The prodigal is greeted with a kiss in a robe, in a ring, in shoes. This was just the perfect picture of him being fully embraced back into the family. And a huge party is now thrown in his honor. It's thrown to celebrate this son returning home, which is an earthly picture of just the joy and elation of conversion. You know, Jesus even talked about that earlier in the text, verse 10, where he says, Likewise I say unto you, there is, joy in the, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. And so it is here that they have this huge party for this returning son, which all shows the, the, just the fullness and the freeness of God's forgiveness. That the son is embraced and welcomed home. And I think it would be quite... Quaint and, and Hallmark-like, if I can say that. <laughs> if the story were to end there, if the story just stopped there, it would be nice. It would be, have a nice happy ending with a bow tied on it. But it doesn't end there. The point, th this is where we really get to the meat of the story. Where we see the pious brother. Look at verse 25. You have the prodigal son. You also have the pious brother. Look at 25 where Jesus continues. Now his elder son was in the field, and as he came and drew nigh to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of his servants and asked what these things meant. And he said unto him, Thy brother is come, and thy father hath killed the fatted calf, because he hath received him safe and sound. And he was angry, and would not go in, therefore, 
and uh, would not go in. Therefore came his father out and entreated him. And he answering said to his father, Lo, these many years do I serve thee. Neither transgressed I at any time thy commandment. And yet thou never gavest me a kid that I may make merry with my friends. But as soon as, that, as this thy son was come, which has de, hath devoured thy living with harlots, thou hast killed him, for him the fatted calf. And he said unto his son, Thou, son, thou art ever with me, and all that I have is thine. If it was meet that we should, be, we should make merry and be glad, for this thy brother was dead and is alive, and was lost and is found. You see, both of these sons were equally rebellious. The one who ran away and the one who stayed, they were both rebellious. One of them forgot what he was given and the other forgot what he had. But both show signs of equal rebellion. The older brother displays both outwardly and inwardly a, an attitude and posture that's just as rebellious as the, the prodigal son. And we often forget this part of the story, but this is the story. Because look at who Jesus was talking to. Jump back up to verse 1. Then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes murmured. They complained. They grumbled, saying, This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. Like we were talking about on Sunday, that Jesus was talking to Pharisees about Pharisees. And he's doing the same thing again. Jesus has just this reputation to talk to these guys about themselves and just how they were trying to get to heaven, by the way, by religion, wasn't working. It's not how it's supposed to work. That's not what Jesus the Messiah has come to do. And so he's talking to these disgruntled Pharisees here, and, he's, and he begins to tell them about this, this son who comes and he complains and after a long day in the homestead, this pious son comes in and he hears this, this huge celebration. He can hear music outside. It's just this raucous party, this celebration over the sun. And he comes in, what's going on? He's raged to find the cause of this is that long lost brother that he had heard that he had forgotten about probably. This, this elder son reveals just a deep seed of righteousness that he is self-righteousness that he is just enraged by this. And he contends with his father. The father comes out. He comes away from the party. And he's just imploring with his son. Just come back in. This is the right thing that we are to do. To celebrate this son who has come home. And the father is then met with just this speech. Of just about how I've been righteous. You can hear it. Basically the son is just saying. Here's how good I am dad. And, and here's how bad he is. He threw it all away. He threw away your wealth. He threw away your reputation. He threw away his own family. And he went his own way. And I have been, I've stayed here. I've stayed here. I've wanted you to celebrate me. And have you ever done that? No. He's complaining the whole time. And he complains, why would you celebrate a rule breaker when I have been the rule keeper? And I've got nothing to show for it. You can just hear the self-righteousness seep through his lips. It sort of reminds me of Luke chapter 18 in the publican's prayer. Remember that? The publican saying, I, I, look at, I'm tithing. I'm doing this, Lord. I'm giving all that I possess. The son is doing the same. He's imploring to God based on his religious resume. And this is what happens when we put our hope and, and our energy and our identity into our, our religious performance. We get frustrated by this type of grace. 
The grace that's given to people that we don't think should deserve it. We who've been blessed by grace sometimes forget the same grace when it's showed to people that we think don't deserve it. Remember, this was Jonah's fault. Remember Jonah, the story of Jonah? He's the prophet called by God to go to Nineveh. And Nineveh was a very wicked city. Violence just filled with all sorts of wickedness. And when Jonah goes there eventually after a really long journey... He starts preaching and people repent and get saved. An amazing display of grace is shown on that city. And what does Jonah do? He gets mad at God for saving that city. He gets frustrated by grace. You see, the gospel will only sound good to a heart that knows how bad it is. And for people who think that they're good already, this grace, this gospel is just frustrating. It frustrates us. When we forget that we are sinners in need of saving grace, we'll get frustrated by that grace. You know, and when we think that Christianity is just some sort of religious checklist that we can check all these boxes off, and that's what makes us righteous and not a relationship, we'll be more apt to bank on our achievements and not on Jesus' performance for us. You see, to perform your Christian life as this pious son did, as these Pharisees were doing, to perform your Christian life is to say that God's law is attainable. But you see, that's not not true. God doesn't work on a barter system. God's not in the negotiation business. He's in the buying back business. He's not trying to say, now, just do all these certain things and you can earn your way back in. No, it's a glorious exchange. Some of the old ancient theologians, they used to call it that, what Jesus did on the cross. The glorious exchange whereby Jesus took your sin on himself and he gave you his righteousness. That's a one-way transaction. You're not not providing anything in there except for the sin that makes it necessary. (laughs) That's all you're providing there. It's a one-way transaction where Jesus takes from you your sin and your shame, and he gives you his righteousness. As it says, you are hid in Christ, in Colossians. And he nails your sinful account to the cross. You see that this redemption is an undeserved gift. It's not a reward. It's not a product. It's not a trophy or something you can win or achieve. It's freely given. And this is what frustrates the pious son. That this father would freely give this to this rebellious son. How could you show such compassion? How could you sow such forgiveness? How could the Messiah, the prophesied Christ, commune with outcasts and sinners? That's what the Pharisees were complaining about. But Jesus is all of those things. All over the Gospels, Jesus strongly and vehemently declares that it is for the lost and for the guilty and for the outcast and for the poor and the brokenhearted I have come. I have come to pardon and forgive. As Mark 2, verse 13. Actually, flip over there. I don't, I don't want to get these verses wrong. Mark chapter 2, in verse 13, Jesus says something very important. Excuse me, it's not Mark 2. I forget which reference it is. It might be Mark 12. One second. Sorry, I wrote down my reference wrong. <laughs> Sorry about that. 
Yeah, it's actually Mark 2. Sorry. <laughs> it is Mark 2. I was looking at it wrong. I already need bifocals. Okay. <laughs> Mark 2, verse 13. Here we go. This is what I wanted to read. <laughs> and he went forth again by the seaside, and all the multitude were resorted unto him, and he taught them. And he passed by, and, or excuse me, as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the receipt of custom, and said unto him, Follow me. And he arose and followed him. Now, if you remember, Levi is, is Matthew. This is a tax collector. Remember what we were talking about on Sunday night about tax collectors? These are people who are pieces of trash. They take from their own people, their own citizens. They take their money. They take it from them to put it in their own pockets. This guy is completely hated. And then Jesus comes and says, You, I want you to be one of my disciples. And he said unto him, Follow me. Verse 15, And it came to pass that as Jesus sat at meat in his house, many publicans and sinners sat also together with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many, and they followed him. And when he, the scribes and Pharisees saw him eat with publicans and sinners, they said unto his disciples, How is it that he eateth and drinketh with publicans and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he saith unto them, They that are whole... Have no need of the physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. That's the point. That Jesus is coming down to sinners. And unless you realize that that's you, then Jesus hasn't come for you. Jesus hasn't come for those who are whole, but those who are sick, who are sick with sin. You see, the point of this story is that we have to understand that it's not really about the, the, the parable of the prodigal son or the parable of the two sons. I really like to think of this as the parable of the ever-gracious father. It's not really about the prodigal son or the pious son. It's fundamentally about the father, a father who, who has a delight in both of his stubborn, rebellious boys, a, a father who loved both of them, and the, even the one who wasted his inheritance and devoured his father's land and bar hopping and, and alcohol and all those things, and even the other son who thought he was good enough to follow all the rules and stayed outside of the party and just pouted. It's about our father. Our Heavenly Father, who loves us unconditionally and lavishes on us grace undiscriminately. And it's this story that shines this bright beacon of hope and light on the inexhaustible grace of Jesus Christ. And it discloses unto us the very nature of God. As it says in Psalm 86.15, that God is full of compassion and gracious, long-suffering and plenteous in mercy and truth. You see, we are these two sons. We're either rebelling or we're resisting. We're either relaxing or we're insisting upon our own self-righteousness. We are just rejecting the gospel either way. Resisting upon it or insisting upon it. We're desperate and we need the grace that can only be found at the foot of the cross. You see, running from God has those two roads. You can either run from God by resisting Him, or you can run away from God by insisting upon your own, own righteousness. And both are equally rebellious. But both of these sons were relying on themselves, and they were doubting and they were questioning the goodness of their father. We must always trust in the boundless grace of God, our God who is also our Father. 
You see, the amazing thing is that as salvation, God is at first your judge. He's judging you based on your life. But at the moment you believe in Him, God becomes your Father, your Heavenly Father. And we must always be able to uh, trust and believe in Him. And so just in closing, I want to give you this, this twofold charge really quick. The first is to never suppose that the things that you are doing are the cause of your salvation. You see, we're often more like these Pharisees or this pious son than I think we would like to admit. I would probably fall into that same category. That I'm often more self-righteous than I want to be. (laughs) And this is why these Pharisees were always irritated with Jesus. And why he was hanging out with all these these lowlifes, with these publicans and sinners, as it says. Is because they were just trusting in their obedience for their justification. And that doesn't work. You see, when we feel responsible for our own righteousness and favor as the son did and as the Pharisees did, we forget that God is our Father. When we base everything on our performance and what we do, we ignore the staggering importance of the relationship with God. A relationship that says that God loves us no matter what. All the way. No matter what, God loves us. See, when you say we get saved, you get that Father. And if you think that God's your religious watchdog, your approach to religion is different than if you know that He's your Father, who, as it says in Hebrews, will never leave you nor forsake you. That's what you get. You don't get a religious watchdog that's waiting for you to fall and stumble. You get a heavenly Father that's wanting to pick you back up when you fall, when you stumble. The prodigal son recognized and admitted his own guilt. The pious brother insisted upon his own righteousness and innocence. And the one experienced grace and freedom. And the other resented and rejected it. Never suppose the things you are doing are the cause of your salvation. But likewise too, never consider yourself too far gone for the remedy of the gospel. That's the amazing thing. I think I said this Sunday, but I'll say it again, that you can never, ever, ever out the coverage of God's forgiveness. Ever. It's impossible to think of a sin that He cannot save from. And if you think, as some might, be, might do, if you think that you've committed the unpardonable sin, you haven't. You haven't. There's no sin that can't be covered by Jesus' cross. As far as our sin might extend, Jesus' grace extends further. Let me read you this one quote. It's from an old writer, and I think it's very, very intriguing when he says that sin might widen its circle age after age, year after year, but grace widened its circle and still went far beyond man's transgression. Year after year, sin ascended a higher pinnacle of rebellion and ungodliness, but grace ascended along with it and took its station far above it like a bright canopy of heavenly azure. Year after year descended to lower and lower depths of hateful pollution, but grace went down along with it. And when the soul found itself at the very bottom of the horrible pit and expected to meet nothing there but hell itself, it found the hand of grace still beneath it, as mighty to save, as willing to bless as ever. You see, just as sin abounded, so did much more grace abound. That's The amazing truth, as it says in Romans 5.20, where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. 
grace always finds us at the bottom, at the limits, at the end of our rope, so to speak. It runs downhill. And when we are at our weakest, that's when Jesus finds us. Where sin abounds, grace is more. So who, who are you tonight? Are you that pious son who is just insisting upon his own religious resume and performance? Saying, this is what I have done, God. Now be good to me. Are you that rebellious son who has run away from God? You strayed far away from his love. You've forgotten how good and gracious he is. If you're anything like me, you probably vacillate and seesaw between the two. You have seasons of rebellion and seasons of insistence. And it's the prayer that grace would keep you right in the middle. That it would keep you right trusting in the ever-loving forgiveness, everlasting forgiveness of God. And I would say this, that whoever you are, whether you're rejecting God by running or rejecting God by insisting, that the same offering is for you. The same offering is for you that has been there forever, which is Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Rest from your running, rest from your religiosity. He will give you rest, the rest that's found in his gospel of everlasting grace. Let's pray.